And you're listening to Inside Your Head. And I never asked to grow up, so please don't make me do it. I wasn't meant to grow up, don't think I'll make it through it. Things have been going south since I hit puberty. It looks like growing up is just too much for me. Well, welcome to Inside Your Head. This is Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by James Dumont. It's very cool to have you here. Thank you, Deb. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I do want to let everyone know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Not just because you're here, so I'm not making it up. I really am looking forward to it. The Righteous Gemstones premieres August 18th on HBO. That is correct. On Sunday, HBO, it's, gonna, it's all going to be happening. Really exciting. Yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah. Looks great, and it's got an amazing cast. Oh yes, and Danny McBride. I just want to just say, like I, I've been working in this business almost thirty years, and I've worked with a lot of amazing people, but I'm pretty blown away by Danny McBride on like so many different levels. Like because the pilot, not only did he, you know, write it and co-write it with the creators of Vice Principals and Eastbound and Down, but he's also the lead actor in it, and he also directed the pilot or, or co-directed it mostly, but. But he he's like he kind of did it all. I mean, he just he's uh, and one of the nicest people like on the planet. So like super talented. He he knows he knows his uh, he knows his audience. He knows his wheelhouse of the kind of characters and what we're looking for. And you know what's great about this is that if you're a fan of Eastbound and Down, if you're a fan of Vice Principals, like this is like the best of those, and then to like the next level. Because you've got an entire kind of like family, you know what I mean? It's this big. Uh, it was really great when I went into my costume fitting on the wall. It had all the gemstone family up there, and there were actual jewels and gems of their kind of color palette for for the show. And I started looking, and I thought, "Oh my god, Danny's building, Danny's building this this family tree. Like this, the the, the possibilities could be to be endless." You know, and I think I, you know, because I was a huge fan of Eastbound and Down. I told Danny yeah, uh, from amazing. the like, you know, from the first time we're shooting the pilot, I said, "Man, I've been wanting to work with you since season one of Eastbound and Down." You know, and then Vice Principals even more so. But like, this is like the the Danny McBride, you know, kind of like the Kenny Powers kind of acerbic nature, the guy that you know, like you know, under underdog and kind of like has been kind of thing, and then. You got vice principal who like the, the revenge and the kind of getting vindicated. And then you have this like this, you know, incredible family with John Goodman as the patriarch of the family, you know, and it's like, it's just, and he's playing it like, like straight out serious, like, you know, real Jimmy Swagger, real Billy Graham. This is the kind of guy that presidents would turn to for spiritual advice in a crucial moment. And that's why. This thing is, and then Adam Devine is just brilliantly funny and, and the, one of the quickest wits and sharpest, you know, improviser out there. Um, and just a solid person and an actor. So it's like, and then Edie Patterson from Vice Principals, the daughter, you know, daughter that doesn't get the love or the attention. It's almost like the, the middle, you know, middle child scenario. And it, it's just, just juicy fun. <laughs> just so much fun. Yeah, it looks like some definitely I'm, I'm going to love. I'm a huge fan of, well, I love John Goodman, too, but uh, Danny McBride. Yeah. I, I've liked him since uh, The Foot Fist Way, which maybe is kind of an obscure oh, yeah. movie. But it, I, you're I, you're, it's, you're, it's you're a true Danny McBride fan then. And Jody <laughs> yes. Hill. 
you know, Jody oh, yeah. Hill's in, in, in a part oh, of the Goon is. Squad with us. Yeah, and, oh. he's, and Jody's in here, and uh, he's part of the Goon Squad, which is Danny McBride's, you know, right hand, his, his gang, his posse, and that's what I'm part of. And uh, just way too much fun. And Jody's just super brilliantly sharp as a director. He directed a lot of episodes as well. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's amazing to kind of be in. And, and, and the only time I've ever had this happen, I worked with uh, Ray Romano years ago on Men of a Certain Age. And Ray is the only person I was, I've ever seen that's been able to be 100% present with you and then also be able to kind of give notes or directions while they're working. And same thing with Danny McBride. Like, he's in 100% immersed in the scene with you, but can also kind of give a perspective and idea of things from, from the outer, on the outside, you know? And I just think that kind of, like, level of brilliance is, is you know, just kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, for you, which do you think's harder, like acting, acting wise, doing a comedic role or dramatic role, or are they really just the same thing? I think um, they're really kind of the same thing for me. I think what was weird is when I originally kind of I started doing all I, I did a lot of theater when I was in New York. I did about two hundred plays in my time in New York. One of which, Six Degrees, the separation that was on Broadway, and then did a national tour to L.A. and that's what got me to Los Angeles. Um, and then, but within that, I like, I've always kind of straddled between comedy and drama. And then when I first moved to LA, I got caught into a whole bunch of sitcoms for a while. And then once I did like one play where I'm like the serious New York cop, it was like those casting directors just, I just made this switch over to drama. So it was like, all of a sudden I was just in the drama mode for a long, long time. And then even weird is some of these major drama shows, there'd be like comic elements or comic characters. And usually that's what I end up playing, like in Grey's Anatomy or in like, um, uh, God, there was a Hugh Laurie show way back in the day. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But House. I would, House, yeah. So I would be like the comic thing in a dramatic show. So I think for me, I've always gravitated more towards the comedy. But at a certain point, when you start playing characters like Jared Leto's father in Dallas Buyers Club, you know, uh, you know, Jay Parnell Thomas in you know, in Trumbo or, or, you know, you start to kind of, they say, Oh, well, this guy, he plays, the, you know, my, I'm in the, I'm in the stoic asshole phase of my career where I'm playing bureaucratic stoic asshole, <laughs> which is, which is not me, but boy, uh-huh. like Cranston and, I, Cranston and I talk about how much fun it is to play the bad guys. Cause we're, we're like the nicest guys, but you know, after doing, he said, after doing breaking bad, he goes like, everybody really thought that I was really that crazy psychotic asshole. And he goes, it just was so freeing because it's so far away from me. And I was like, yeah. I said, what is it about the uh, us real nice guys can play like the, it's so much fun to be the bad dudes. Cause you know, we're just, everybody just, Oh, he's so nice. What a lovely, you know, you just want to be the bad guy, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of where things are after me is I kind of straddle between the two. And I, I, you know, cause I feel like I'm a kind of every man in the sense. So I don't, mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't necessarily feel, uh, I feel comfortable in both. Um, and when I do too much of drama, I really want to do comedy. And if I do too much of comedy, I want to do more drama. So mm-hmm. I just try to find a straddle away and not have anybody kind of peg me like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that only does X, Y, Z, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I saw your son's also in uh, in in The Righteous he Gemstones. Is. Yeah. Is this, he's got a it's the first time you guys place. work together on something? Well, we did uh, we did a mini, we did a little uh, thing on um, 
HBO called Mosaic, which was this new kind of experiment that Steven Soderbergh was doing. And it turned out they needed a family without a mom. And so my daughter, Sinclair, who's about to go off to college, uh, Ithaca for theater, she was in it. And then my son played my son. And then the three of us together were in, you know, a couple episodes. So that was the first time where all three of us were working together. Um, we were in the same scene. But this one, he plays, he plays Pontius Gemstone, uh, which is Danny McBride's middle son. Um, and so he, uh, yeah, so, he, so but we're not, we're, we're in scenes together, but we're not in scenes together. We're in the same scene. We're just not working opposite each other. Right. Because he's, he's a gemstone and I'm just one of Danny's boys. But uh, really great to be able to kind of be on set and working together. And, you know, some days I'm the on-set dad, you know, <laughs> I'm his personal assistant. And then some days I'm working, you know. So it's really uh, what, a, what a fun coup. I got cast first and then they saw my son's audition. And they were like, oh, wait, is that, is, is, are they related? Again, like, yeah, oh, my God. You know, and then after we started working, Danny was just so incredibly positive and complimentary. He's like, wow, I got two demons in, in my show, man. This is pretty cool. He's just, I'm just a lucky dude. And I was like, oh, we're the, we're the lucky one. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, it turned out great. Yeah. Being an actor yourself, did you encourage him to act? And what was it like uh, his idea, like he wanted to become an actor? No, not necessarily. He was really into baseball. And I know he's really into like architecture and stuff. <clears throat> and we never really kind of talked about it or I never really kind of pushed it as a career. Honestly, in the beginning, uh, he was having, uh, we, we were originally having issues with him in terms of reading stuff and reading comprehension. And um, when he, uh, we noticed that when he started reading things aloud, he was much better at comprehension. And then mm -hmm. one of the things is one of the, they did something at school where they wanted him to read one of the characters in this book. And, um, for some reason, he was just, he was just so solid on it. You know, like it was like something about reading it aloud and getting up there. And so we really used it as a means to kind of help him to be more comfortable with reading comprehension and speaking. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, he's, he's in the Grinch and the Grinch who stole Christmas in the school play. And then he gets caught cast in this one, uh, one kind of uh, a movie with uh, Lena Headley from Game of Thrones and Patrick Wilson. Um, and then he's doing astronaut wives. Club. So it's like, it was kind of like, <clears throat> but recently after coming off the first season of gemstones, he's like, you know, I think I want to, I think I want to devote a little more time to, to training and, and learn and try to get this down a little bit more, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a new, that's a new thing for him. Yeah. Well, what's HBO itself like to work for? I love working for HBO. I, I started working down in the South on uh, working for HBO on Treme. I did three and a half seasons of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love working for them. And then when we did Mosaic, um, I did I also did Winchell, another HBO movie. I did a, a Pentagon Wars for HBO. I just, you know, it's, it's interesting. Everybody talks about Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. But the reality was the, the, the first subscription-based content was HBO. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, uh, creating original, solid, you know, content uh, for subscribers with HBO. And so it's interesting how everybody's focusing in on what Netflix is doing. But the reality was that the, the king of this game was HBO. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice I, to be back in the HBO family. I'm, 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 I'm happy, uh, you know, uh, to be working for them. I did a big movie for Netflix recently called Wonderland with uh, Mark Wahlberg. It's my third time with Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg directing. 
And uh, Netflix is different than HBO, but, you know, but it's interesting how uh, I'm back with HBO again. I'm just couldn't be happier. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll ask a question there about Netflix, but first uh, about HBO, I totally agree. I mean, I, I always think what really changed uh, television series, you know, Sopranos, you know, also the wire and um, Oz were all, all around the same time. But uh, since Sopranos really, I think a golden age of TV series. I agree. Yeah, and the wire. I'm, I'm. I'm. I would be. More, I would be more hard pressed to say. For me, the wire was the original binge watching. Yeah. Because I did. I think think Sopranos was fantastic, and and you know, Game of Thrones, the Boardwalk, all these shows are. But there was something that the wire did from season one to season two, when they would get. They used to have them on VHS, and then they went to DVD. But they would tease you, and they'd only give you like two DVDs, so you had to go back and get another one. But then they then they got smart by season two. They give you like six CDs, <laughs> you know. They be, so they were like, "Hey, you know." And this is exactly what I did. And I remember it happening. This is way before Netflix. Is mm-hmm. like is the DVD would happen, and you'd be like, "Okay, it's a uh, okay. It's ten o'clock. That episode's another. Okay, I'm gonna watch another episode. Right? And then at eleven o'clock, you're like, "Okay, there's two more on this DVD." <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's yeah. twelve o'clock. <laughs> So two o'clock in the morning, you're still watching The Wire. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I'd be like, okay, this this is very addictive binge watching. And then really a little bit after that, like kind of Netflix kind of came in there. So I just feel like I still feel HBO is kind of the the pioneer of of the of that kind of uh, binge watching. You know? Yeah, yeah. The whole binge watching and same thing, thing with is Sopranos. Cool, I couldn't like week yeah. for week. Sopranos drove me crazy. The fact that I oh, yeah. I couldn't wait for the next week of Sopranos. Just could not wait. What's going to happen? You know. Uh huh. Yeah. It, it's really weird uh, watching things either way because binge watching, like I said, you you might go to like four a.m. and don't even realize you're up all night. Uh, but there is right. something about waiting every week to watch an episode. I think you kind of appreciate it more at the same time. I think so. Well, that's that's what I grew up on. You know, I'm I'm old, I'm old yeah. and I remember. The Tuesday slot on Saturday, on uh, the Tuesday slot on ABC was uh, it was Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and then Mork and Mindy. And it was just like, I, you know, each week I was like, couldn't wait for the next week for that to happen. I'm like, oh, what's what's gonna what's gonna go on? You know, like I gotta watch, I gotta watch, I gotta watch. Yeah, but but it's cool because I think a lot of shows I know I personally wouldn't have watched um, without being able to binge watch them because if you don't watch them when they're first on a lot of times you know it would just be hard to ever see them correct absolutely and you said uh netflix and h netflix is different from hbo but like uh, how so uh just in terms of you know uh hbo has kind of been this fine-tuned machine for a long time so they're very clear about how they go about the execution of their shows they've also kind of they because they've been doing it so long there's a there's a group of producers and art and artistic folks that, that they keep going back to that I think uh, because they didn't pretty much say, Hey, look, here's the thing with HBO. You know how to run a show. You know how to write a show. Just go ahead and do it. Like the way in which that they let, you know, the, after David Simon did the wire, it's like when we got to Treme, they were like, look, you know what you're doing. We don't need to handhold. We don't need to watch. Now the difference with it, Netflix is they still are a fairly newer network. They still give people that same kind of autonomy but I do think there's a little bit of kind of watching, a little bit of shepherding, because they, you know, they 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 want to make sure that it's it's going to be done right. You know, I don't, I didn't. That's the difference. That's the only difference that I kind of saw. Although, although I was in the second season of Stranger Things, and I think they really, 
uh, you know, Sean Levy, who's a showrunner on that, like they, they really do know that he can kind of handle it. Um, but I think that there was a little bit, you know, even I was on Netflix movie, there was a, you know, Netflix executives would kind of come in and check in every once in a while to make sure everything's going fine. For the most part, they really are giving us to, to do it. But I think because it's fairly new that there's that, there's that scenario, you know, mm-hmm. uh- the rise of the platforms like Netflix and Hulu and all these things. How does that, yeah. uh, how did that, how does that affect you as an actor? Uh, well, residuals are a big deal. You know, like it's like the, the, I, I don't think it really worked out well for the individual. Uh, I, it may work out in these new contracts for the writers and the directors, but I know on the acting end, it doesn't, it, what doesn't make sense to me is that you have millions of more eyes and there's no re- remuneration really kind of tied to it. Also, Netflix is very withholding of how many people are watching a show with our unions. And I don't think that's really right to be able to do that because that it is that information is their understand is their business model and things like that. But the, but the amount of eyes and the amount of subscribers were always tied to compensation for the on the residual on the residual end, you know, yeah. um, this is Joseph Cross, director of Summer Night, and you're listening to Inside Your Head. I don't know where I was left, where I left off, just about the differences of, uh, yeah, I think on the, re- the residual end on the other side, it seems to be, uh, it doesn't seem to be as much as it, as it is for the millions amount of eyes and subscribers that are being, that are watching shows. That's my only big difference between the two. Because with yeah. network, you had ad, you had direct ad revenue for that popularity of that show. The ad revenue is then, there's remuneration for that. If we're not getting the information from Netflix about exactly how many subscribers or how popular a show is, um, then uh, it makes it difficult. For us actors, we really live on the residuals. That actually helps mm-hmm. our pension and health, that puts pension health for my kids, uh, mm-hmm. medical and dental. So I have to earn certain thresholds, but I think it's an interesting thing where you're on a hot particular show, you would think that the, you know, the compensation would be, you know, in conjunction with that it's just it, it doesn't really kind of add up you know yeah um, yeah well the same was uh you know i asked a lot of people that question who are on like the different uh, uh platforms and it really comes down to uh if, if it's someone's new to the business they say it's all positive for them but if it is more of a veteran actor they do talk about you know it's a much different in the compensation exactly the same oh yeah yeah, there's, there's, I mean, when I first moved to Los Angeles, there was a, I had a lot of friends who were kind of older kind of character actors and who had been on like bigger network shows where, you know, they'd be a guest star for a week and it'd be like $50,000 for the week or $25,000, you know, they didn't, wouldn't even have to audition. It was kind of like handed, handed the, uh, the rules, you know, and it was like, then they, they, this guy said to me, he goes, Hey man, there's this thing going around. I, I just moved from New York and they asked him, I was, oh, yeah, I, I, I know about AIDS. And he goes, well, it's actually worse than AIDS. And I go, tell me what's worse than AIDS. And he goes, what's worse than AIDS is scale plus 10, take it or leave it. Mm. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, now, now what they're doing is they're starving everybody out. So they're going, this is back in 1992. They're starving everybody out. And so they're only going to offer them, they're only going to offer them scale plus 10. So you scale plus 10 or take it or leave it when these other guys were making, you know, 30 and $50,000 per episode. Um, So yeah, there's, there's a, that was, I I didn't know what he was talking about. And as somebody who was just moving from, from New York, 
and somebody was just moving from New York, I was like, oh, well, I don't, no, I'll take scale plus one. I'm like, no big deal. I'm just happy to have the opportunity. And the guys who had been in the business for who had been in the bus uh, so much longer were like, were like, oh no, man, I mean, how are we going to pay for our, our houses and our kids? So in '92 is when when the business really started to kind of try to level out the the, the salaries of the actors. And then the Writers Guild strike was another thing that they did of doing 90 days in order to kind of level out old deals that they had where they were giving writers, you know, producers millions of dollars to hold them, to do a network hold on those writers. And uh, so, yeah, there's this, there's, every once in a while, there's this kind of like upsurge in the business where guys, you know, used to make tons and tons of money and now... You know, I felt the same way for commercials as well. I was like, I don't understand. I used to do a net, national network commercial, and that would make like fifty or sixty thousand dollars. Now I'm doing a national, now I'm doing a national network commercial, and it's like I'm only getting like twenty five, and I'm reaching three times the amount of people that right. I did yeah. back, you know, back in the eighties and nineties. So, you know, congratulations to them on on one front of being able to go. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're able to, you know, you're trying to figure out your business model and with vertical integration, a lot of these entertainment companies, uh, work like every other major corporation. And so you got to kind of cut your costs and cut your overhead and find ways to increase your profit margins, you know? So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, you know, it's a difficult one. Yeah. yeah. I don't know when I, uh, Tony Todd on, you play Candyman. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he talked about you know when when VHS sales were were big or when rental stores were big, Blockbuster and rental stores. Yeah. You know, he made right. a, a lot from the Candyman, but he said now if you like, uh, if you think about it, you pay like eight dollars for Netflix a month, and your movie's part of you know hundreds of thousands of other movies. You know, how much does that actually come to? And it you know it's basically nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just a big difference for us, and you know we're on. You know, it does come down to the food chain. I think you're seeing uh, that's why a lot of these days you see a lot of the major actors are also executive producers on those projects. So right. whatever whatever compensation they you know would have would have gotten, they now you know they're active participants on the on the uh, they're active participants on the um, producing it. So they're able to if they don't really they can't really afford to kind of pay them what they're normally used to paying. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Like I think I remember the story about Forrest Gump when they were making Forrest Gump. He was like, "Well, you know, my salary now is blah blah blah. You know this." And they, he's like, "Well, I'll, I'm going to take points on the on the gross, not the net, on the back end of this." And it ended up being like three times as much money as what his salary would have been to do that. And so that that's that's a real positive thing that are happening. That actors are more are producer partners in here. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're the bigger guys, but if you're the, you know, you're, if you're the middle dude, like me, middle, middle management, it doesn't work so great. And if you're the guy that's kind of just starting out, it's even more difficult, you know? So I'm always yeah. encouraging, I have students and younger actors and people in the business. My big encouragement to people is to create good, strong, powerful, original content that really makes people laugh and really moves them <clears throat> and own it, own what you do. You know, Danny McBride, the perfect kind of example of like, <clears throat> you know, being able to own and create your own 
vehicle and audience and you know if it's good and compelling and fun, they'll keep coming back yeah. you know so i think uh we're also also are at a golden age of television too in terms of you know concepts and ideas that can that start on youtube can easily be turned into shows if there's really if there's really something uh if there's really a message or an audience or um uh there's something there you know and people mm. pe- you know if you build it they will come <laughs> you yeah. know right Right. Yeah, and there's a lot of shows now that probably would have never been a show before, you know, because they're like a, a very weird idea or something, or you think maybe that's yeah. like a, a small audience for for like interest in this, but with all these channels now, they give it a chance, and so it was like, and I like weird stuff, so it was all kinds of yeah. you know, neat shows that pop no, up. No, that, that's why that I feel it really around. is that the golden age of television ago, you know, because uh, I'm originally, my, my family is... Um, my great 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 uncle is a guy named Alan Dumont, who created the original uh, Dumont Television, which is one of the first network wow. television, individual yeah. network television network networks. And so, some of the original programming on there was what we call narrow cast kind of programming. It was really for a very specific kind of niche or or niche niche audience. So there was a there was a African American woman that had a cooking show. And that was on the radio, and then she had a first television series, and and so that, there were people who wanted to have like learn southern recipes, so they would kind of watch. So the idea is that even in the early days of television, there were wrestling. They had wrestling for periods of yeah. time. Then they had cavalcade stars or show of shows, the Jackie Gleason show, where they had this little skit about a bus driver and his his friend Ed Norton, and that became the Honeymooners, and that became this you know from a sketch into a series. So it's like. In the in the early days of television, it was like this that there were that there was content created for a very uh, specific audience, and uh, so we're kind of getting back to that now. Like I like that content, you know. There's uh, uh, now there's game, uh, LGBTQ uh, shows that are being created on those networks for for audiences that want to see those particular shows. So it it's uh, I think we're in a really kind of interesting time. That uh, I mean, just look at it. just the amount of content is out there. And now I think the internet, the world is like kind of not just domestically. I think the world is really um, seeking and demanding good content. Because now you can, unlike the old days, you're right. You had to wait wait each week. Now you can actually get the content at your fingertips. Um, mm-hmm. Just can you really can you do your regular job and still be able to catch up on your show? You know, yeah. but that's yeah. what planes are for. And so that's what long distance trips with your kids are for. You know, it's like. Uh, you know, now we can now we can kind of create and and uh, pick what we want. Same thing with music. I remember you had to buy the whole. I used to be a DJ, so you had to buy the whole album. But maybe yeah. that album had like one or two great songs, and you were forced to do it. Now it's like, oh no, no, I can just basically pull the songs I want. You know, I I just think that's a good thing. I think that's a plus for everybody. Yeah, yeah it's weird because I think even um, uh, Best Buy they stopped selling physical CDs. You, you know, you can't go into a Best Buy and buy a music CD anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, just recently. Well, I didn't know that. Because everything's being done, everything's being done online. There's no need to do it. Well, yeah. same thing with like record stores and bookstores are going through the same thing too. Mm-hmm. Why? Why am I creating? A, why am I paying rent to house all this content or house these books when? Now the library here in, in New Orleans, and I'm sure it's in other cities too. You can access those books electronically from the local library online. Yeah. So even those 
he's a local library is getting in on. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Even here, I live in a very small town on Cape Cod, but yeah, you could go to their to their website and find all the all the books. Nice. I love me some Cape Cod. I've been down to Edgar Town. I love I love it down there. I went to school at BU. And I'll be oh, going up to Boston. Uh yeah, I'll be going up to Boston next week to uh do a resurface movie, um <clears throat> Wonderland I did for Netflix. Mm-hmm. And uh I love Boston, man. What a great what a great town. And just the whole Massachusetts of love it. Yeah. Yes. So, did you filmed um, you filmed Wonderland in in Boston? Yeah, we shot. Yeah, we shot Wonderland last fall, uh, all throughout Boston, and then uh, we're just doing some reshoots uh, at the end of this month in order for everything to be kind of ready for the fall. I think they want to do October, November. They're, they may do a theatrical release for Netflix, for Netflix, um, or they may just post it up on Netflix, you know, uh, from the get go. But I know that's the goal that we're doing. Is we're just going to pick up some reshoots at the end of this mark, month with, uh, and that movie's got Mark Wahlberg in there. It's got uh, Winston Duke from Black Panther. It's got Post Malone in his first uh, feature film. And uh, a lot of fun. Alan Arkin is in there and uh, really great. It's just a great, great movie. It's going to be fun. Yeah. You said you mentioned you, uh, you worked with Mark Wahlberg before. When you work, um, on multiple projects with somebody, do you like, do you build chemistry or do you have chemistry with them originally? Like, yeah, specifically for me, it's like the first film I did was uh, Deepwater Horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the vice president of VP on that. And so I was there for 12 weeks and uh, I had, um, uh, I had uh, built up a nice rapport with Peter Berg, who was the director. And then Mark Wahlberg is the star. Um, and then so then it went so well that we then picked up the relationship again um, and worked on Patriot's Day in Boston. And then uh, just, this is our third third project together on Wonderland for Netflix. So, yeah, you build up for me with Pete. Um, we have a real kind of a shorthand when it comes to direction. He doesn't really need to give me a lot of direction. Sometimes there's a kind of a look or there's an audible or he just comes over and whispers something or he just kind of lets me do my thing. Uh, so with us, it's a, it's, we have a nice little tight little shorthand. Um, and uh, with Mark, it's like we built a really good relationship from deep water that when I got on Patriots Day, we reconnected there and then Wonderland again. So, yeah, you just you build a... You know, when you kind of, they, they say if you really cast a project right, <laughs> there's not a lot of direction or things that you have to do. Picking the right people, you can then kind of really move along and, and, and fine-tune and focus in on other areas. So the, the last thing I want anybody to kind of be thinking or concerned about is having to give me direction or ideas about ways to kind of attack certain characters and material. And when you when you work with somebody on a repetitive basis like I have with, I work with Soderbergh twice. I've worked with Spielberg twice. I've worked with uh, with now Peter three times. Um, yeah, you just build up a kind of a shorthand and a quick, easy way to kind of get performances where they need to go. So you're not spending a lot of time and energy. Uh, I just did this movie called The Banker that we did a reshoot of. This George Melfi, who directed The Adjustment Bureau, wrote and directed The Adjustment Bureau, which I really loved with Matt Damon. And even he and I, it's like we, we're going to be working together as much as I probably work with Peter Moore because uh, he just like, no, man, I don't, you know, you come in here and you just kind of slay it and, 
any director ever asked me about working with James Dumont, they're like, oh yeah, no, that guy, two takes and out. That's all you know. You, you don't have to worry about him. You move on and you can, you'll make your days and you're going to get, always get a hundred percent performance from him. He's like, this is what I need. I have, I have so many other, you know, moving parts to these films and projects and things. The last thing I want to worry about it. And it's so reassuring to have an actor that can handle heavy amounts of dialogue, totally be off book and then give me lots of choices. Take the take. So he's like, you know, we're going to be working together a lot. I'm like, wow, that's quite a lovely compliment. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. May, every, may, may everybody say that about me. It's a lovely, <laughs> you know, I love that. Yeah. Uh, when, when you do the, the Boston movies, do you, uh, do you do a Boston accent? Uh, I asked Pete about that for this one. He didn't want it. I was kind of playing a Whitey Bulger kind of guy, monster oh, guy. Good. Yeah. So, you know, I thought it might be required and he said no. There's another there's other people that are doing it. Um so yeah. So I, I, he said stay away from it. But I mean I've done hardcore Boston stuff there, you know. Like I did a I did a whole voice the campaign, you know. I love that my Noma. I love that guy. I just take myself <laughs> to the bottom of team bus. You know, and then we went down, we parked our car in Harvard Lodge. Yeah, and it's like, wicked cool, that guy. <laughs> so I'm like, I love doing, I love to get a chance to do Boston accents. It's just, you know, and and City on the Hill is, is coming up. And so I might do something on that, that they like some Boston folks in there. But there's guys that are Boston accent that this is their accent totally. It's the two, to kind of take All those right, jobs right. away. You know, I, I do yeah. feel a little guilty. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, from yeah. Chicago and I'm not, you know, but I play guys from New York and, you know, it's like, <laughs> If they don't know where you're from, it's none of their business. None of their business. You know? People ask me right. like, "Well, where where are you from?" I said, "It's none of your business where I'm from." What do you What do you need to know that for? Yeah. What do you want me to do? You want Chicago? I give you Chicago. Back a heart attack. Forget about it, guys. You know, <laughs> in New York, uh-huh. I give you New York. Forget it. You know, forget about it. My friend is the thing. If you need you know, you from the Bronx, where are you from? You know. So it's yeah. like it doesn't really matter. You know, it's like it doesn't. If you're an everyman, you know, you don't you don't have to be kind of caught into one two things. I have. A lot of my guys are, you know, are on Sopranos, and it's like they're mob guys forever, which is great. They work, but it's like, yeah. then when the mob stuff drives up, they're all like, "Yeah, hey, what am I gonna do?" <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I, 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 I was told once I've. Uh, go on, sorry. Me? No, you. You first. Uh, I was just say I was told once I have a nondescript American accent. I didn't know how to take that. It was sounded like a. Uh, I would take that as a compliment. All right. I think, you know, we are America. It's a, it a, should be a hodgepodge of various different <laughs> ethnicities true. and backgrounds. You know, that's really what America is all about. So, uh, so yeah, I think, I think that's a good thing. Cause it, cause I, I think it's because they don't kind of peg you as one thing. I, I went through that a good, a good while. When I first, when I went from being from Chicago and then I went to school in Boston, it was like, you know, I did have Chicago, very heavy Chicago accent, you know, mm-hmm. certain things and, you know, I had a Midwestern thing going. So at the end of the sentence, everything would go down, you know, and after you talk to me for 10 minutes, everything would be kind of boring. So it's like, I was always like, you know, my phone, my inflections would fall at the end of the sentence, which is basically put people to sleep. And then you go to New York and it's like, you're all pumped up and fired them. And then down here in the South, man, there's all these kind of characters down here. I mean, man, you got the slow Southern guys that talk real slow. Uh-huh. And then you got, hey, man, here's the thing you got to understand. You know, every doghouse, outhouse, farmhouse, you know, you just like, it just seems great. You know, I, I'm now really enjoying all the Southern accents, too, because there's guys down here that just do that, too. So, mm-hmm. you, gotta, you know, I really feel like people say, uh, 
people say, oh, you're a character actor. And I just feel like I'm an actor. Mm-hmm. A character actor, in my view, is a guy that can do like one character. Like Slice alone is a character actor. He does one character. Yeah. Yeah. Actors, as, as I know them to be, like a, like you would in the repertory theater company, in the course of a of a season, you would play Shakespeare and you would play Willie Loman. And, you know, so a real mm-hmm. actor plays all these different kind of roles. So as much as I may not be leading man good looks, uh, or the ingenue or, and they kind of relegate, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, William Forsythe is a character, an actor buddy of mine. And I said, Hey man, you're one of my favorite from one character actor. And he goes, Oh, don't be using that C word. <laughs> don't use the C word. And I was like, what? He goes, now nah, you call him the character actor. That puts me in this kind of category of like, you know, not leading man. Because I can carry, I have, and I can carry any movie anytime. I was like, oh, you know, so you know what? He's right. Yeah. He's right. He doesn't want to be relegated or pegged or discounted to be uh, just, you know, a utility or go-to guy that you go to. I mean, he's a serious actor. You remember his work in Boardwalk? Yeah, he was amazing in Boardwalk. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Boardwalk, he was uh, he was the, the butcher. He was the guy who was the yeah. butcher, and he plays this very, you know, Jewish killer, killer butcher. So I was like, wow, dude. You know, here's a guy from the Midwest, like, pulling off. And then he was killer in opposite uh, John Goodman in, um, you know, in uh, Raising Arizona. You know, the two, oh, yeah. the two guys, hey, hey, <laughs> you know, like, I just, that's an actor, man. To me, that's mm-hmm. an actor, not a character actor. That guy could do anything, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very like uh, laid back, like kind of a, a meat guy in um, Once Upon a Time in America. So it's like, yeah, you can play pretty much anything. Yeah, absolutely. And that's One what, of my favorite. Me, that's what really actors. That's, that's what actors really should be able to do. Right? I think being able to play one thing. I think, and also there's a weird little trap in this business too. You know, if you're known as the guy that does that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what you do, and that's how you make millions of dollars. And then all of a sudden, that thing just becomes out of fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, then who are you? You know what I mean? You got to reinvent yeah. yourself. So I feel like I kind of, I kind of like to stick and move and make sure I don't kind of stick to one kind of character or role. Although I am seeing a kind of a tendency that, you know, these days a lot of historical characters are kind of coming my way. So, you know, but playing the Carl Rhodes of the world, I'm, I'm excited about. You know, and and whatever, whatever else, uh, criminal politicians that are going to be coming up in this next generation, <laughs> like guys that are guys that are like leaving the Trump administration yeah. and leaving right. Senate and Congress, like this is yeah. you know, I, I don't I don't look like this this pedophile billionaire, so that that, that <laughs> I'll leave that one to Scott Bak. I'll let Scott Bakula do the TV movie of that, but uh-huh. uh, but I mean uh, yeah, you know. Carl, yeah. Carl Rove getting caught in his room, his videotaping the rooms in his pedophile island. And yeah, I'm down for all that. You know, it's like, and it, se- and it seems like, you know, Christian Bale's taking some roles from me. I'm like, wait, man, I should be, you know, that's my that's role. I can, true. Yeah, I don't, have to, I don't, have, weight, I don't yeah. have to gain that weight and cut my hair. I'm already bald and fat. Like I already got this guy. I'm, <laughs> I can do Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney in my sleep. I've been trying to do a, a a Rush Limbaugh movie for uh, <laughs> I could <laughs> the, 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 the yeah. liberal media, the feminazis of the world. The uh, you know, this is this is what it is, people. <laughs> you know, I just can't wait to fucking just just channel me some inner rush, you know, do a whole bunch of prescription medication and then just say some vile shit. Uh, 
Yeah, so I'm looking forward to those, you know, and George Malfi, who's directing the, the, the banker, said, oh, my God, there's so many good roles coming up that you may just stick around. You know, when you get to be in your 60s, it's like, there's just there's tons of these dudes. And I said, yeah, there is, there is. So, well, yeah, that's good. You have a good future ahead of you. I do. I just got to take good care of my health and uh, watch my weight, and I think I'll be all right. Yeah. yeah. I've uh, I have a here as a character. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy Mon, he's a character actor here, and uh, he is a he is a character actor because he's a total character. But he's uh, like now he's in you know mid sixties, and he's like, man, I'm just every time I turn around, I'm getting these roles, and I'm getting this. Uh, I said, yeah, man, you know, at sixty, there's not a lot of dudes, <laughs> really good actors. They've either moved on or retired, or they've done something else, or you know what I mean, or they're dead. <laughs> That's it. You got to stick around. You're working in the sixty to eighty pool. You know, once. I remember when I moved into the 40 to 60 pool, it's like I go into an audition with all these great actors that I've really loved and respected over the years. And, uh, I mean, these are guys that like, I just, I've watched their work for and I'm, I'm like, Oh my God, now I'm in the 40, I'm in the 40 to 60 pool, you know? And mm-hmm. so I turned to this one actor this guy, a buddy of mine named Michael O'Neill. And, and I said, Hey, Mike, I mean, Michael, I'm just so glad to be in this group of you guys, man. I just watched your Peter Jason and this other guy. Chris Ellis, and I'm like, I've been a fan of all your work, you know, for years. And, and, and he turns to me and goes, well, you don't have to suck my dick. I'm not giving you a job. <laughs> like, we're, we're all, we're all auditioning for the same role. He goes, it's either you or him or him or him. He's like, uh, uh-uh. he goes, but I really, and he was making a joke. He was kidding. He was a yeah, super yeah. nice guy, but he was coming out. He's like, look, man, don't kiss my ass. I got, I got, I got no, I got no bone in I got no skin to this game, you know. He's like, I'm, I'm, get, I'm trying to get a role just like you, but it was really yeah. amazing to kind of like, wow, now I'm in this group of these guys that I really, really love and respect their work, and uh, and it's really nice to. I, what I've noticed now is now they're starting to know my work, and uh, that that's that's been a real kind of feather in my cap. It's the kind of like the, the people that I've looked to and respected for many years of being uh, contemporary, you know. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is when you're working on these projects with some of the most famous, well-known people, you know, you're on equal terms when you're working with them artistically. Mm-hmm. The minute it says cut and their bodyguards come in or they're, or someone brings them something, they're, they're back to being whoever they are in the general public in the world, you know, mm-hmm. on the, on the, on the food chain and you're down back below where you were or are. But when you're working together, you're equals. And, and I've had the really the great honor to work opposite amazing actors who are academy and be on par and be equal in performance with Academy Award winning actors like Jared Leto, like Melissa Leo, like, uh, you know, Leo DiCaprio and, and you know, and, and, uh, I don't think Cruz ever got one, but, but, you know, Tom Hanks, or for example, you know, when you're working with these people, they are usually in, in Brian Cranston for nomination of Oscar. You know, when you're working with them, uh, Helen Mirren, for example, when you're working with them, you are on equal footing. You are creating something together, and you are, and, and that's really kind of exciting to me, is to be working with some of the best people in the business on equal terms and not everybody going, oh, that guy sucked in that scene. <laughs> like, she was great, or he was great. He just couldn't hold his own. It's like, no, 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 they know. And I think that that's... Um, that's been one of the most satisfying things is to be working at the level of, of, of what I believe is the, the top, you know, 
And there's people that I want to, I'm dying to work with. I'm dying to work with Daniel Day Lewis. I'm dying to work with Jerry Oldman, you know, mm-hmm. people, uh, uh, Christian Bale, people that are doing things that I go, I, man, I don't think I can do what they do. I want to strive for that, but I don't think I can, you know? Mm-hmm. So what, what were the, um, who were the actors that you saw that made you wanted to become an actor? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I haven't thought about that one in a while. I, you know, he's an underestimated actor, but it, but but Gene Kelly was just I t- I thought he was a damn good actor and he could do everything. There's mm-hmm. something about him that well, another thing, Gene Kelly was, and then the other Gene, Gene Hackman. Yeah. I mean, Gene Hackman's just like you know that's a that's that's a guy right there. You know, and even even as intense as he was, he's uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, Charles Bronson, uh, even the, the guy, tough dude, Steve McQueen, and these guys were just naturals, you know, Paul Newman, Robert Redford. Um, but there was something about Gene Kelly that, like, you know, you saw him as a song and dance man, but when it came to acting, he was, it was so, he made it look so effortless. Everything he did looked effortless. And the other one, too, is I'm a big James Cagney fan. With Cagney's, you know, acting technique, what's your acting technique? He goes, I plant two feet on the ground, I look him square in the eye, and I tell them, I tell them the truth. See, and they go, yeah, man, that's, that's the deal. You know, Spencer uh-huh. Tracy, you know, these yeah. are guys that were, that I consider just, uh, uh, and even, even man, Dick Van Dyke, man, if you look at some of the early Dick Van Dyke work, mm-hmm. he's just brilliant, just brilliant work. And, uh, so yeah, there's just people that, and that's a big, huge wide range. I still, li- I still like Robert De Niro's early work. I still like Al Pacino's yeah. early work. I think later on what happens is because of the commodity of what they have to do and what, what the audiences want, I think mm-hmm. they have to bend a little bit to be what we want them to be rather than uh, stretch out and expand what they want to do. Although I've seen Pacino do it on stage. I just haven't seen De Niro kind of do that. You know, I think yeah. sticking and relegating to what, what works and what's good, but he's an amazing producer and does amazing things. I just yeah. think um, that kind of raw that raw kind of uh, work is not, you know, and I, and I think anybody's capable of doing it at any time under any circumstances, given the material in the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really looking forward though, to, uh, to, to the Irishman on, um, on Netflix to see, uh, yeah, Niro I, and, you know, I, I am too, because he got that combination of a lot of things. The, yeah. it, it got back to me that there were some issues about him. Uh, they did it. They, they did a thing where they had some issues about, somebody playing the younger, they didn't have somebody playing a younger version of him. And it really did not work him playing younger and older versions of himself. So I believe that they went ahead and did a reshoot to kind of address that issue because the audiences were just like, wait, that, he doesn't look anywhere. It's like, that's, that's still him, you know? Yeah. So yeah, usually they some did movies, the, uh... when, they're trying, when they're doing the historical pieces, they try to have a younger version, like a kid version, like a teen and then a 20 something. And then the older version, I think with this one, they were trying to have a younger version of, and the hair and the makeup just didn't look, look kind of, audiences were kind of laughing at it. That's what I, that's what it got back to me. I have no idea. And yeah, I, I, I just read it. Netflix or Irishman, you know, I'm a yeah. huge Scorsese fan. I love all the oh, actors me. in there. And I, and yeah. I was up to two big roles in there, but it just didn't pan out. Oh, that's, that's a shame though. It's like a dream thing for me to see, but the, uh, yeah, I just read an article about it like a couple weeks ago. Was they they did the um, the de aging and like I guess the aging uh, w- with the video to to make them look younger for the ro- for the uh, for the role. Like you said, yeah. so they're not they don't have uh, different actors playing them. 
Yeah, that's what I heard. That I, that, that's, that was one of the issues, you know. Yeah. Which, again, these are these are minor things. The stories. I remember the book, you know, you know, Saint Houses or something like that a while back. But you know, like this guy's not a tell story. I'm excited. Yeah. That should be a yeah. really really solid movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of Netflix, it's really weird that something like that is on Netflix. Like, you wouldn't have thought, you know, 10 years ago that, you know, Scorsese movie with Pacino and De Niro would be made, you know, for Netflix. You know, you would yeah, but definitely I think, think that I think, would be a, I, think, a I, I like that Netflix does this. I also feel oh, like, yeah. um, for, for example, this movie, The Banker, that I'm in, um, you know, Apple just acquired the movie. This is going to be Apple's first feature film theatrical release they're going to release this film for 30 days in theaters and they're doing it specifically in the fall in order to be considered for oscar contention mm-hmm. and i feel like wow they're here now apple is going to you know take a a page from the netflix book but i think even hbo did this too each hbo was like look we can I keep it on here too. yeah but i think hbo might might even consider theatrical models of this i like that netflix is, is doing this and that's they talked about wonderland Maybe having a theatrical, they, they're definitely doing it with the Irishman where they'll do a small theatrical. They've done it with some of the other, uh, other films, uh, Netflix films. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, who, who, who finances it and takes the risk like this should be able to benefit from all the rewards. So I just think, I think the studio is just pissed because, you know, they're not able to, uh, or take the kind of risk that Netflix is. I know that when our Netflix film, we're a $50 million film, Wonderland is. Mm-hmm. And that that was one of, I think, ten fifty million dollar films that 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 were in production at the same time at Netflix. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know a studio in this country that that is taking on the that kind of that's a risk. You know that yeah. is that is high risk, and along I think with high risk you also should get you know be be allowed high rewards. Mm-hmm. You you take on you take on a movie and a story that that maybe the studio passed on because. Of budgets or reasons, or it didn't fit their particular model or their output. So you got to give you got to give kudos and credits to, to to the Netflix for, you know, they they are extending themselves. I think they do have a, their their goal is is their international reach. I think their content, if they really their growth is in international as opposed to domestic. And we're at a different we're at a different time. And now with Apple taking on the, the banker, I think, man, that you know, a, a, Apple wants to get in the game. You know, I think. Too. It's, and the thing is, these larger companies, the Amazons, the the the, the Apples, uh, they have deep pockets to to invest in projects. Mm-hmm. They they don't they're not they're not you know these larger conglomerates are owned by other corporations. Yeah. You know, you know, Coke owns Paramount and Paramount owns Viacom and Vi- you know it's like it's like it's, right. so they make decisions like large, huge, multi-billion-dollar conglomerates where I think you know. Uh, Netflix is, you know, we, we, we're going to take the big risk. We, you know, it, it, some, some are going to work and some are not, but you know, so that's, uh, I, I give a lot of kudos to that. So I think they, I think they deserve and they're, and they're entitled to, to I agree. try to, uh, go for it. You know, why not? Yeah. 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 I don't, I know. I've never even really understood the reasoning behind why if something didn't have a theatrical release, it won't, couldn't be up for an Oscar. Uh, yeah, I think that's an archaic kind of, philosophical thing yeah. I, I mean i'm a huge huge fan of spielberg so i really don't want to go you know sure. go against his thing but i think uh you know i think that's an old film and digital east coast west coast battle <laughs> you know what I mean? right. it's a gangster rap you know it's what's, what's the better uh, gangster rap east coast right. west coast it, rap is rap 
still damn good. You know, I like a little bit of this, I like a little bit of that. That's raw, that's this, you know. So I think film to digital is, uh, that, that is a little bit of the argument too, because I think, and I think that a lot of it has to do with, you know, you talked about it earlier too, about the, the you know, the bookstore or the bookstore holding books or that, you know, Best Buy doesn't do DVDs anymore. So it's like taking up that, that shelf space and that, and, and having a physical place to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may be an arch- archaic kind of model to do it. And I think the same thing holds true for movies as well. Taking on the risk of making many copies, it possibly being pirated. There's a whole big thing that uh, Thunderbird came up with that I thought was great, which is when the movie comes out theatrically, mm-hmm. uh, you can buy the DVD right there on the spot. So yeah. this is a way to eliminate and avoid piracy, which is the only way you're, if, if the DVD and the movie come out at the same time, when you leave, you can walk away with a copy of Star Wars. If you want to avoid that piracy, you do it all at once. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, yeah. You know, separate and take away that gap. But I think the financial risks of, of publicity and advertising in order to put a movie out, I think that's really where that stems from is the kind of risk reward scenario that studios are used to is, is having to spend so much money for publicity and advertising to put it into a movie theater in order to be eligible. Uh, they just, you know, they don't like somebody skirting the rules. So even if somebody plays the minimum rules, and I think it's only supposed to play 30 days in LA or New York or a certain amount of theaters in order to be eligible. And they're going to try to change those rules perhaps in order to kind of not have the, you know, Netflix or HBO or Apple or other entities or Amazon to get in the game, you know, the kind of, you know, taking on that kind of risk of publicity advertising. Because sometimes it's, it's more money to pay for the publicity and the advertising of the movie than the whole movie cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So crazy. We're, yeah. we're an interesting time for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know some of my cinef- my uh, my fan my cinephile friends will be mad at me, but uh, I go to a lot of uh, like thirty-five millimeter screenings up in Boston, and I never can really tell the difference between the 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 film uh, projection or, or the. Uh, or the digital ones. Yeah. I know people get mad at me. Yeah. I, I don't really see the difference. Unless it's like a real old print. And then the difference is it, it doesn't, it's kind of choppy, but uh, I guess yeah. it adds character. But. Yeah, good is good. I've heard you should see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 70 millimeter. If I get yeah. a chance to do it, I probably will. Do you know what I mean? If you're spending the time to do that for those reasons and the ratio aperture or the, you know, exposure or the colors or, you know, mm-hmm. you know. If that yeah, makes I did. a difference, but, yeah. but I think I, good is good. I think good is good. Yeah, you know? yeah I did. I good did see Hateful Eight. Story. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I did see Hateful Eight uh, in seventy millimeter in Brookline. The, 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 I, I don't think they're showing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in seventy millimeter there, but it that yeah. one did look pretty cool in seventy millimeter. I have to right. say, I know they're doing it in Los Angeles and New York. That uh, they're definitely showing it in seventy millimeter. I'm trying to find it here in New Orleans uh, to do that. So. Yeah, I love the movie. I saw it uh, when it came out. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But I'm waiting. Okay, yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's great. Cool. Yeah. So I want to ask about uh, Jurassic World. When you do a movie, sure. First of all, did, did you have do you have any scenes with do you have any scenes with dinosaurs? Just wonder what it's that what what it's no, like to mine act. Is like just, a, I, yeah, I'm the corporate sponsor, so I'm in the beginning of the movie when I'm just okay. talking about we want the we want the dinosaurs bigger, better, and. Uh, Although everybody at my kid's school thinks I'm the fat guy with a sandwich that gets eaten, but that's another friend of mine. So, uh, all right. uh, no, I'm the corporate sponsor. So mine is all about money and, and making them bigger and badder and, you know, more profits rather than, uh, being eaten. But I, I did suggest to Colin Trevorrow, the director, when he, when he did two and even in the three, I'm like, come on, 
we're in a time that the corporations should be eaten. Corporate executives should be eaten <laughs> by, by, by dinosaurs. Right. And I want to be the guy. All right. Bring yeah. me back. Bring right. me back in order just to be eaten. That's what I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, I would I like the audience to cheer. I think the audience yeah. would cheer. You know, exactly. Exactly. Some 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 asshole move where I'm on a cell phone blocking the kids' school or something <laughs> like that, and they just just a dinosaur just just eats me alive, you know, right. chomps yeah. me in half, something fun yeah. like that. Yeah. Since you since you mentioned Chicago, but I want to ask is why why do people sure. in Chicago uh, uh, hate ketchup on on a hot dog? Because it shouldn't be on a hot dog. It doesn't make no sense. It's in mustard, relish, pickles, peppers, uh-huh. onions. That's it. Why would you put something sweet on a hot dog? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you do sweet like peppers. You got a little relish, just kind relish. of sweet, like sweet relish. Whatever. Ah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. When you I was there, I mean? we, yeah, uh, my friend like tried town bad. You, you, put, yeah. you put ketchup on oysters on the air. Come on. That's true. That's Tartar yeah, sauce with fish. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Really I guess. I guess you're Talk right. Now, like something. That. You know. Yeah. Yeah, now I've seen Why a different you want something sweet. You know? Yeah, see. <laughs> yeah, and how, well, how about that Boston uh, pizza versus Chicago pizza? I'm a uh, fan of both. You know, but they're completely different. I'm a fan of both, actually. I'll be honest with you, I'm a fan of both. I'm actually a fan of like really like Italian pizza. I like really Neapolitan thin, I, like crunchy, my, almost yeah. like a like a wafer. Like that's the kind of stuff I like. But when I, the brick oven stuff bubbles and real crunchy, that's what I'm digging. My kids were never in the deep dish because they're like, why am I eating all this dough? I was like, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. Uh, I got to hop in a little bit. So, uh, you have more questions? You good? No, I think we're good. We we got the important stuff in there about ketchup on hot dogs and deep dish for stuff. Thin crust pizza. So, I think we're good. Oh, yeah. That's that's the most important. It is. It's very important. I'll put that right in the the write-up. But I, I had a Absolutely. good time with uh, I had a good time talking to you. It was a really really fun time. Thanks, me too as well. And uh, yeah, keep in touch and then uh, forward on the link and stuff so I can I can post it out on all of my uh, social media and stuff. Cool. Yes, we will. Yeah. Very good. Thanks right. again. Thanks. Man. Appreciate Thank it. You. Have a good one. Bye. All Bye. my high school friends are off in college now. And I get high and watch TV all day. Living in my mother's basement's really not that bad I got everything I need and I don't pay And I never asked to grow up So please don't make me do it I wasn't meant to grow up Don't think I'll make it through it Things have been going south since I hit puberty It looks like growing up is just much for me I was doing fine when I was still a kid swapping baseball cards and playing ball then came my school classes that I couldn't understand and girls who wouldn't notice me at all but I never asked to grow up so please don't make Say I need-
agree with them, but I say not now. No, not right now. When I say I need to get a life.